Maths Talk by AMSI Schools, where conversations in maths become part of your professional learning practice. My name's Leanne McMahon. I'm an AMSI Schools Outreach Officer, and today I'm talking with colleagues Marcus Garrett and the AMSI School Manager, Janine Spreckle. Hi, Janine and Marcus. How are you? Hi, Leanne. How are you? I'm well. Hi, Leanne. Thanks for being here. It's an absolute pleasure. This is the second podcast in our Term 1 series, focused on setting yourself and your students up for a great year's learning in mathematics. We thought in this episode, we might look at some of the general elements and considerations to make when structuring and delivering a good maths lesson. That is, what features do teachers need to think about to help ensure effective learning takes place in the lesson, and that the students are well equipped to grasp new concepts and to develop and practice skills? So, Marcus and Janine... As I understand it, we'll talk generally about some recommended structures and things to include, but I'm assuming that there's a fair bit of flexibility involved there. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, absolutely. Every teacher is different. Every student group is different. And so every maths lesson is going to be different. So really, I guess all we're going to talk about is um, some suggested structures and ideas, but lessons are obviously going to reflect the the individuality of teachers and, and their student group. And lessons between different classrooms and lessons from the same teacher are going to look quite different. But also, as a classroom teacher, you're going to need to mix up your delivery and your lessons so that they're not boring for students. They like a bit of structure. They like to know what's coming and they like their known little bits and bobs that are comfortable for them, but they also like having things mixed up for them. So no cookie cutters here. No no cookie cutters. bit of variety, but I agree with Janine. There's nothing more conservative than a teenager sometimes. They do like to know what's coming. <laughs> That's right. Yep. Well, just before we start getting into that structure, let's talk about where the maths lesson sits. I think when you've got a 45-minute session or a one-hour session, it's easy to think of that as something that happens in isolation and it's it's unrelated, but it actually fits in part of a whole year's program and it's just one tiny snippet, one 45-minute, one-hour, one one-and-a-half-hour block of something that's got a beginning, a middle and an end in itself, but it's also fitting into the wider program. Yeah, so I guess by maths lesson I'd mean I might mean a sequence of lessons. So it could be uh, you're working on a, a unit of work. It could be even project-based learning in mathematics, and it might take three or four lessons. And as Janine said, it, that's obviously going to fit inside a unit, and the unit fits within the context of a whole program. Yeah. So yeah, yep. that's one thing that I have found in visiting schools that often you're asked to do a lesson. And I find that extremely difficult. Yeah. A, a lot of the time I'll say to teachers if I'm working in their classroom, look, I'm going to start this off, but you're going to need to follow this up with, you know, X, Y, Z with the next lesson. And I'll actually sometimes drop teachers in it too and say to students, Mr. Such and Such or Miss Such and Such is going to finish this next time you have mathematics so that you can keep working on this particular problem. Yes. A lesson doesn't exist in isolation. Mm. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Planning to have a structure and planning to deliver a series of lessons or a group of sessions means that then you've got flexibility to move around according to student need. So you've done your pre-assessment, you're looking at the data that that's provided to you, you've planned your unit of work, you know your content, and I'm jumping ahead a bit, but it's nice to know where it fits in the whole scheme so that then you've got the comfort to feel that you can be flexible with it and the kids can see where you're going and you can say, well, we're going to pause this here, we're going to have lunch, we'll come back tomorrow in, the, in our afternoon session and, and pick this up again. You might actually need to jump ahead really quickly 
you might discover in your pre-assessment that students are, are grasping things a lot quicker than you thought they were going to. So that's, again, where you need flexibility. So it's not just a one-off. It all knits together really nicely. Yeah, I, I think that point about planning and knowing what that you have clear lesson intentions and clear objectives, if that's forefront in your mind, then you are able to move around a bit. You know, it's like taking taking a journey. Um, if you know where you're going, it's okay to take a side road and explore a cafe or explore you know something to do, but you're still going to return to the road and, and, and continue on your, your main destination. Uh, it's nice to know that if you've planned, you've got that flexibility. And with that in mind, can we then consider the structure of this lesson or series of lessons? I think there's a lot to be said for warming kids up, for, for giving kids some kind of ignition activity, some kind of warm-up activity that may or may not be related to the main content or the main objective that you've got, but it gets them to start thinking mathematically. It puts them in that mind frame where, okay, we're now thinking about mathematical concepts, mathematical structures, mathematical reasoning. Um, it could be a game. It could be a number talk, something that just gets them going and thinking mathematically. I'm putting you on the spot here, but is there research behind that? I don't know of any research. I know that warm-up activities became something that we were all doing a long time ago and it's something that I've retained in my practice. It tunes kids in as Marcus said but it also gives them a little reminder of oh multiplication that's what that is a fraction that's why that's important. One of the warm-ups that I really like to do is walk in with a gift bag a party bag that's a bit sparkly a bit pretty a bit gorgeous and just do the oh what's in here with the class and it actually works right up to year eight. I've, I've done this with Older kids have done this with tiny tots, and it might be three numbers that we're going to add together, or it might be today's number is 27. What do we know about the number 27? Or it might be today's shape. But the act, the, the drama behind pulling it out of the bag and, and making this a big deal actually helps add to the excitement and the engagement and that I want to act on this, I want to do this in the classroom, and it's a really lovely little activity, and it can be something you've got stuffed in, you know, your box of tricks that you can just pull out whenever you think you're going to need it. Yeah, it's like warming up your audience, isn't it? Yeah, just getting them, getting them excited, getting them, making them wonder to start with. Yep. Yeah, yep. maybe maybe the research is in stand-up comedy or something. like that. <laughs> I think all of the stages that we're about to talk about are the stages in any good performance. Yeah. Teaching is a bit of a performance. You know, we have to warm our audience up. We have to be prepared. We have to be in costume. Mm. We have to have our our pitch right. We have to have the audience participation session ready to go. Mm. You know, all of those things, that's exactly what we're doing. I remember my very first head teacher, John Kamanis, if you're listening, <laughs> um, said to me in my first week of teaching, Marcus, teaching is 90% theatre. And I've always remembered that. <laughs> I think the good thing about warm-up and ignition activities too is – from the get-go, you can start to collect some formative assessment evidence. And I don't mean that in a very formal sense. I just mean you're, you have the opportunity to listen to your students and find out where they're coming from mathematically. Maybe even record that, jot some notes on a whiteboard and take a photo of it. I know number talks are particularly good for that, where you're, you're getting the opportunity to listen to what kids are saying. You're actually getting a little bit of feedback from kids as well. Yes, and it's all data. The other thing that the preloading activities can do is preload vocabulary that you're going to need later on in the session or yeah. later on in the unit of work. Um, there are lots of reasons why we want to preload vocabulary. It might be, you know, 
learning English as a second language. It might be that they've not experienced this kind of thing before. It might be a check-in to see how developed their skills were from the previous year's worth of work and um, the preloading vocabulary and then making note of that again on the whiteboard or somehow in, in the classroom having a vocab wall, that can come from this initial session. Mm. I think one of the things that I really like is that it gives the students an opportunity to experience success right at the start of the lesson, especially if it's some sort of game or something yeah. like that, and it can set them up for um, some success later in the lesson. Yep. Mm. So... What about the role of explicit teaching? <laughs> it's interesting. I think um, education often swings like a pendulum. It goes you know, between one thing and another. And I think for a while there, many teachers believed that being too explicit in your approach was not the way to go that we you know it's all about discovery learning and that that's that's all fantastic but i certainly believe there is absolutely a role for explicit teaching for teachers knowing the content and being able to explain that content clearly to students and there's different ways of doing that but explicit teaching to me means being able to say to my students this is the concept we're covering this is how it works here are some examples before or, or even when they have to start doing that themselves. So how does that fit into this structure of the lesson? For me, explicit teaching can come prior, so just after you warm up. You can, you can go in and do the traditional old-fashioned thing of just teaching a few skills that they might need later on, or you could dive into a problem-solving activity, pause it, or, or follow up at the end with a bit more explicit teaching that might make that, the solving of that problem a bit easier. I sort of liken it to learning how to swim. When you're learning how to swim, there are things that you need to do. You need to be able to be confident getting in the water. You need to be comfortable having your feet off, off the bottom of the water, all of those things that you do in your warm-up. But then there are, there are skills like how to flick your hand out, which side to breathe on, all of those, that at some point your knowledgeable swimming teacher, who's a pretty decent swimmer themselves, needs to say to you, have you tried this? Have you thought about this? Here's a skill that's going to make life easier for you. And I think that's where the explicit teaching comes in in mathematics. It's when numbers do this, we, we talk about it in this way, is an obvious explicit teaching, say, in addition. If you're adding two even numbers, if you're adding two odd numbers, have you noticed that? Yes. I think sometimes we see it as a dichotomy. We either have explicit teaching or discovery learning. We actually need to learn how to combine the two. Yeah, definitely. Ab totally ab absolutely. And, and, you know, the other thing about explicit teaching is Janine's already mentioned the importance of vocabulary. I think um, teachers can model mathematical language uh, to students so that it makes it easier for them to conceptualise what they're doing. So, look, you know, if I'm multiplying two numbers that are the same together, I'm squaring those numbers, introducing new, new vocabulary like that. It's also giving teachers the opportunity to make mistakes in front of students and, and let students see that there's a process that we go through. That doesn't look right. I wonder how I can check this. I wonder why the result isn't what I was expecting. One of the things that we are being asked to do all the time is improve fluency. What do you think about that? Well, fluency is about kids being able to find more efficient ways of doing mathematics and more accurate ways of doing mathematics. And just like there is an important role for someone to show you how, how to do something, there's also an important role to practice that. 
So we all, most of us, learn best by doing. Sure, we need someone to show us the right way to, to do something or, or even a new way to do something, but we have to have a go at that ourselves before it becomes part of our mental map, if that makes sense. So fluency is about kids practicing what they've learnt and learning more efficient ways of doing that, I think. I'd agree. I think it's like when you learn to tie your shoelaces. There's a deliberate make a loop, make another loop, tie the loops together, pull the loops tight. There are four deliberate steps or, or seven or however many steps there are. But as you become more fluent with it, one flows into the next. Fluency is not about being faster. It's about doing things with a fluidity that's a confidence, that's a comfort with it. Mm, I think that's probably something that we do need to discuss. I often hear of fluency being speed and learning facts. Marcus, what you've been saying seems to be more than that. It, it is more than that. Look, speed um, is actually less important, I think, than, than efficiency. And I, pro- I probably need to just explain what I mean by that. Efficiency means I can, I can take a maths concept and break it down and apply it in, in other ways without having to think really too hard about that. So the reason that we encourage students, for example, to learn their multiplication facts or their times tables, as, as they're often called, is not because there's anything inherently good in remembering by rote what those number facts are, but it's rather so that they can access that knowledge easily to solve problems. So I think, you know, the other day we were talking about number facts and we're talking about six times seven. If you know that six times six is 36, you'll know that six times seven is 42 because you realize that you're just able to add another six on if you think about it that way. So that's what I mean by fluency. It's understanding efficiently uh, a maths concept so that I don't have to think too hard and add to my mental load when I come to solving maths problems. Okay, so when we're talking about the structure of the lesson, how does that fit in? Yeah. I think it's about making sure there's time for students to practice fluency, to build fluency, and it doesn't need to be done in a boring way. I'm not saying, you know, um, the left left column, do every second problem. (laughs) I'm saying there are more ways of practicing things by not having a slab of questions thrown at you. And one of the examples I like is... If you want students to practice subtraction, investigate the little problem where if you take a three-digit number, reverse the digits, subtract one from the other, keep doing that, you'll almost always end up at the same two numbers at the end. And you pose it as a problem. They're actually practicing three-digit subtraction, but they're investigating a different problem. And it's just one of my favourite ways to get them practising, showing me what they can do, and they don't realise they're practising it because, oh, what about this pair of numbers? What about that pair of numbers? Does it work for a five-digit number? How does it happen? You know, And then you can get onto the whys and the wherefores. Yeah, that's but right. they're actually practising a little skill that you want them to practise in, yes. in a voluntarily engaging way. They're learning fluency through problem-solving, which is – far more interesting and far more relevant to the mathematics that they'll be doing in later years and in their lives. Exactly. And I think games have 
a role yes. in that too. There are a lot of, just giving at the Calculate website a bit of a plug, we have lots of games on the Calculate website that do exactly that. They build fluency in a fun or interesting way. Games like Roco, Factor 24, uh, Salute, where your kids are actually learning their number facts, but they're, they're, they're playing a silly game, standing back to back with cards pasted to their foreheads, you know, yes. creates that opportunity to practice and to become more efficient, but it makes it fun. And, and look, sometimes a bit of competitiveness is a good thing. Other times it's not. But I think um, just, just changing it up a bit with games can make it more fun. Absolutely. So that takes us on to another one of our favourite proficiencies, problem solving. We've been told that we should be using these proficiencies in every lesson. So where do we bring in problem solving? Problem solving can come into every lesson and every part of the lesson, but it's really nice for kids to have the experience of investigating a problem that's not solved within three seconds. I think a lot of students see mathematics as something that they do and they solve, as we said before, quickly. Um, what we're interested in is when they draw on the skills that they've got and apply them through a problem-solving task, that they're engaging with the material, that they're thinking ahead, that they're laying out their thinking and explaining it to somebody else. And, and a really nice problem does all of those things all in one hit. But again, it's really important that students understand that we may not solve it this week. There are some problems that have never been solved. That's what mathematicians do. And it's just a nice way to introduce that kind of thinking too. Yeah, I think becoming comfortable with the emotion of uncertainty, of realising that it's okay to not solve that problem really quickly to, to actually be uncertain to realize that I may not have solved this now but eventually if I keep working on it I'll find my way through it that's a time you know we're the Google generation we want to find answers quickly and many of us can become frustrated if we can't find those solutions quickly but that's not really how the real world works and it's certainly not how professional mathematicians work they take time and there is a lot of uncertainty involved Okay, so what about using group work? Well, again, you know, I think the answer is it's both. Um, and you may not use group work in every lesson. Um, I do think that there's a lot to be gained from having students work together, both in groups where they are of a similar ability and also in groups where they are of mixed ability or mixed readiness to learn because I think, just like the real world, sometimes we're working with people that can show us new things. Similarly, we work with people that maybe aren't, aren't as, as quick at us at a particular thing. We can learn patience and, and the ability to explain that. But I also think there's opportunities there where kids are grouped, um, particularly in explanatory stuff. If they're, if they're grouped in similar ability, it makes it easier to explain a specific concept. So I think the answer is um, group work absolutely has a place, but it's not just one thing all the time. I think group work needs to change too. The, the groups themselves need to be flexible. Yep. So students not, because of a test they did on February 22nd, lumped into a group that they then are stuck in for the rest of the year and they know. They're in, the, they're in the dodos group and they know what a dodo means. The, the yeah. wombats. Yeah, yeah. that's right. They, you know, they know that. And the other thing is that you can do the same activity. It doesn't have to be a different activity like different stations around the room that the class is working on. You can all work in groups on the same activity and then have a really rich conversation at the end of it 
about what each group found. And I think sometimes we get a little bit caught up in having five stations throughout the week and students work through it and there's never any conversation or follow-up or resolution of the problems, if you like. It's just left hanging in the air. So I like to, to mix it up a little bit okay. for that reason. Okay. So we've looked at the, the structure of the lesson, the warm-up, the role of explicit teaching, improving fluency, practising problem-solving and group work. What about winding it all up? That's usually where the time's run out, the bell's about to ring, the lunch orders have arrived, and you don't have time for that. This is why planning is so important. You've really got to book in the time for two kinds of reflection in my book. One is reflection from the students, and the other is exactly what you just did then, Leanne. This is what we've been talking about and laying out the really key important things that we learnt because that's the bit students are going to remember as well. It's that last stage in tell the people what they're, what they're going to learn, tell them what they're learning and then explain to them what they've just learned. So it's that, that last part, explaining to them what they've just learned that, that is we often, it, we're rushed. I mean, I, I cannot tell you the number of times where the bell's gone and I've gone, where did, where did the time go? You know? I think Janine might have been in my classroom yeah. more than once. Yep. And, and you know what, I think primary teachers are in a really advantageous position because what you can do when, when you are caught out like that is simply say to kids, you know what, guys, when you come back in from mm-hmm. recess, I just want to spend five minutes going through what we just did then. High school teachers, that's a little difficult because you might have to wait till later in the week. One of the best uses I've seen of a high school teacher using the school system, so, you know, the electronic whiteboardy type system that is to have that reflection up there Yeah, and, and it's worth to treat. And the other thing that you can do is set a homework question that's the follow-up. You know, we've been learning about this. So homework, to me, if you, if you do it, and I've got lots of um, – that could be a whole other podcast. Yes, it could yes. be another podcast. Put that on the list. Homework should never be something we haven't at least initiated in the classroom. It shouldn't be so new that students are terrified by it and parents more so. So I think a homework question is always a nice – this is the kind of thing we've been covering in class, step one, two, three, or interesting little point number four, five, and six. So there's our structure of the lesson. What about what we're actually teaching? Uh, the content <laughs> – Look, I cannot emphasize enough that the curriculum or the syllabus or whatever document you're working with must drive what it is you're teaching in mathematics. I think if you start by looking at the syllabus or the curriculum that you're using, you're not guessing what it is you're supposed to be teaching. You're not relying on a textbook in which case you'll invariably teach much, much more than you need to teach at a particular grade level or or a particular stage level. So starting with the curriculum, I know it sounds basic, but um, I I just think it's it's a fundamental practice in in mathematics teaching to start with the curriculum and, and use a good scope and sequence to plan that out. It's really important to do an audit as well each year and make sure that you are on track for covering the curriculum and you've planned a whole year's worth of work as well as your units of work that fit into that. Otherwise, you won't necessarily cover the curriculum. You might spend six weeks on orienteering when you need to spend two lessons on north, south, east and west at grade four or five level. Mm. So it's about making sure the only way you're going to deal with the crowded curriculum is to plan it out across the year and then, as we discussed before, take into account student assessment data and and plan within that unit of work in the week what you need to cover for those students. But if you've planned out across the year, you more confidently can deliver content. So it's really important for teachers to have a good understanding of the curriculum. 
Absolutely. And look, the other benefit of planning is you're going to come across a concept invariably where you think, oh, I need to brush up myself. I'm a bit uncertain about that. So you're able to then jump in and do a bit of professional learning yourself to to brush up on content. So I, I think teachers need to be confident in their own understanding with the content. It's okay to tell kids, look, I'm not sure I'm going to get back to you. That absolutely shows them that's what a good learner does. If they're uncertain, they they go away, they have a think and explore and come back. But I just think having confidence and projecting confidence to students in mathematics is really important. Yes. I often say don't let them smell your fear. (laughs) And and it can't be a reason for avoiding a topic or avoiding a a piece of content because you're not quite prepared. I probably should plug the MC content modules here. We've yep. got those little snippets of work, lovely little PDF documents and interactive videos and so on to help teachers understand the content in the curriculum and to explain it to them in a way that they can then take into their classroom. Mm. Great. Another point about confidence is often teachers will get the question from kids, how am I going to use this? What am I going to do with this? If you know how the mathematics is likely to relate to the real world, I just think that adds to to your level of confidence and it gives kids a reason for doing the maths. It's really unfortunate that so many students, one of the first things they'll tell you about mathematics is, I don't see how it relates to the real world. If a child says to us, excuse me, sir, or excuse me, miss, how is this going to help me in my life? Telling them I don't know, I just it's is not good enough. You can tell them I'm not sure I'll get back to you, yep. but get back to them. Yep, that's right. Okay, so we've looked at the structure, we've looked at the content. Let's talk about the personality. <laughs> what about your delivery? It's entertainment, <laughs> and you need to plan for it like it's entertainment. We're in a, a world where students have a, an attention span of about two or three minutes, And I think that's always been the case. I don't think that's necessarily a new thing, but there's always something to distract them. If you are confidently delivering your lesson and you've got a good grasp of the material and the activity is all ready to go and you've got your blocks on the table and you've got your icy pole sticks in piles on the floor and you've got the piece of paper or the whiteboard that they're going to work, ready to work on, ready to go, it's all going to go much more smoothly. So it's it's about planning to entertain them well. If you watch someone, um, and, and I suggest this because it's very accessible, if you watch someone deliver a maths lesson like Eddie Wu, yeah. the reason he's been so successful is he projects enthusiasm. Yeah. He makes the maths that he does, even if he's explaining you know, quite complex mathematical concepts, he makes it sound almost entertaining, sometimes very entertaining. Now, I'm sure there's days that Eddie comes into his classroom and, you know, he's had a busy morning with the kids and he's had to run around here and do this and answer this text message and this phone call. And I'm sure he comes into the classroom thinking, I'm exhausted and and mentally not ready for this, but he doesn't project that at all. He projects playfulness. Not at all. So, look. Tell stories to to exemplify concepts. Use lots of different resources. Don't just stick to one form of delivery. Relate the maths that you're you're doing to you know the real world as as much as you possibly can. Uh, listen to your kids to see if they are able to relate the maths that you're doing to their experience. You know, ask kids questions like, "Can anyone think of a time when this kind of maths might have been useful to you?" Context is extremely important yep. and it avoids, I guess, the question, 
when are we ever going to use this? Because by putting this maths into context, you can actually see where it's being used. Yeah, we'll, right. we'll, we'll, they, they can see, they, they can start to contribute to that. So if, if there's a comfort in the classroom, what Susie Groves talks about, that, that climate in the classroom is such that they feel comfortable and safe volunteering information, they're going to offer context, they're going to offer suggestions. The other part of student voice is, and, and my favourite phrase is, don't say anything a child could say. Don't explain something to the class. If you've just overheard Leanne explain it to the little group she's working with on the table, Leanne, say to her, in a minute, I'm going to ask you to tell the whole class what you just did because I really love that. Yeah. Yep. That's success too. Success breeds success, If especially if poor Leanne hasn't come up with any new concepts in the last six months. All of a sudden, she's been successful. Catch them being successful and then get them to share it with the rest of the class. And you'll be very surprised how often they say to you, oh, Miss, why didn't you explain it like that? And you've been trying to do that for the last three lessons. Or you have actually explained it exactly the same way, but they trust their peers. They do. So giving examples of where maths is used in the real world, outside the classroom, how can we extend the maths from the classroom? The unfortunate part about modern secondary education is we we tend to silo subjects you know so we do geography and we do mathematics and we do english the danger of that is many teenagers find it difficult to relate how knowledge and understanding interrelates with one another a good scientist is is a good mathematician a good writer is uh, often a good geographer and a good historian and I dare say even a good mathematician. So subjects relate to each other. So co-opt other subjects, find what kids are doing in secondary school in other subjects and relate the mathematics that you're doing in your classroom to what they're studying in geography, in history, in science. In the primary classroom, I think we overcomplicate it very often. A context for a five-year-old is how many steps is it from, my, from the line where I line up in the morning when I say goodbye to mum and dad to the door of the classroom mm. and tell them when they're on the line, we're going to count and get to the classroom and then use that number. Now, it might be that you get one number, but more often than not with 32 preps in the classroom, you're going to get 32 different numbers because they've all counted it in a different way and they've forgotten to keep counting yeah. when after they put their bag down and they've got to take their shoes off because it's a muddy day and it's all of those things. But then use those numbers for the rest of the day and do it again tomorrow and do it again on Thursday and just see how you how you build up that number. It, the context for, for primary children can be something that's quite immediate. Yes. Um, my grade five sixes from about 15 or 16 years ago will tell you their favourite lesson was when I brought in bags of lolly snakes and the only instruction they had was do the maths to do with a bag of lolly snakes in your group. It took us a whole day. We didn't do anything else. My grade often had um, had whole days of maths. Maths days, what a joy that would be. (laughs) The context for them was something that was in front of them. It comes back to stories too, and they're fascinated with you as a teacher. So tell them silly stories. I know my wife is a kindergarten teacher and she'll tell stupid stories about our poodles to bring in mats. So literally she'll say, Archie ate three pairs of underpants and Hermione (laughs) ate two pairs of underpants. How many pairs of underpants did the dogs eat? You know, the kids... Firstly, they think it's true, so they're fascinated by that. But secondly, it just creates 
that immediate childlike yeah. fascination with with the context. And it's a real context. It's not a silly context. Yes. Yeah. It's not there were some rabbits in a picture theatre and how many rows and how many rabbits were in each row. Rabbits don't go to the pictures. It has <laughs> like to be. dogs eat underpants. Yeah. It has to and be. And our dogs do eat underpants. <laughs> Thanks for that, Marcus. Janine, you've got me really excited about this idea of doing maths all day. So many excursions that our kids get to go on are history-related or science-related. Could we do something for maths? We used to do a walk around the block, and it, it involves a bit of you know getting permissions and having parent helpers and all of that kind of stuff. But it's actually really close to home. You're not crossing any roads. If you've got a school that, that's in a suburb, then you can do that, and you can take digital photographs now. You've got devices all over the place. You can use your iPads, take photos of house numbers, of arrays, of curved lines, of circles, all kinds of, of different things. You can go to the supermarket. You can look at the maths on packets. You can look at the maths on all kinds of things. The other thing that you can do is bring in maths that's personal to the child. So the homework is collecting this kind of data. So it doesn't have to be a big wacky do excursion that costs a lot of money. That's good because they probably won't let us go anyway. <laughs> in in uh, secondary, particularly in lower secondary, uh, statistics are a really rich topic to get out of the classroom and, and have kids involved in something in the real world. So whether it might be taking a survey of prices at the local supermarket or, you know, running question surveys that they've prepared, you know, in the local street with, with whichever permissions you need to do that, but actually getting the kids out of the classroom and applying mathematics in, in a real-world context I think is incredibly valuable. That's fantastic. Really good to hear. Well, we've covered an awful lot today. We've covered the structure of the lesson. We've covered the content, the delivery and the context. I think it's probably a good place to leave it now. You've been listening to Maths Talk by AMC Schools and we've been talking today about what makes for a good maths lesson. If you have some thoughts or questions about today's episode or some suggestions for future episodes, why don't you get in touch? Just go to our webpage, calculate.org. Click on the podcast menu tab and on the page you'll find a webmail option. You can ask questions or provide feedback there. Alternately, we can be reached via email on the address choosemaths at amsi.org.au and just pop Maths Talk in, in your name into the email subject bar and ask or comment away. We'd love to hear from you. Don't forget our Twitter page and our Facebook I'd like to thank my colleagues Janine and Marcus for joining me today for what I think has been a really practical and helpful maths talk. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having us, Leanne. It was fun. Thanks, Leanne. Thanks for the maths chat. <laughs> it's been really nice sharing the studio with you and having you share your expertise and thoughts. Sound recording, production and editing has been done here at the AMC Schools Unit. A special thanks go to Lulu Nurenda for looking after our publicity and media and to Cass Lowry for handling our Twitter feed. A reminder, please check our show notes at calculate.org.au as well as the links and resources we've provided. And don't forget to subscribe to Maths Talk on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Spotify if you're listening from one of these platforms. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time.